Friends, what most would you like to hear me say right now if you had your choice of anything that is possible for the human tongue to say? What most would you like to hear me say right now on the radio? <laughs> That's what I thought, friends. That's exactly what I thought. Isn't it amazing how, of course, this, this kind of direct communication is very possible in our day and age, and, and that we might as well utilize it as much as we can. Now, sitting here in the studio, I got this vast wave of uh, what everybody wanted me to say. And so I'll say it. It's amazing how all people are agreed on one thing. They wanted me to say, uh, hello, friends and neighbors. <laughs> Isn't that what they wanted? All right, big enough, tell me. Oh, uh, as by way of a disclaimer, the following program is not for bird lovers or animal nuts. And uh, the cat cuckoos will not like this next show. And the doggy dippies are going to go out of their skull. Oh, yeah, I tell you, as our world gets more and more deeply involved in automation and all that stuff and yelling and hollering and stuff, that uh, there, there will be a growing population of cat cuckoos. And a growing po Do you agree, Tony? A growing population of doggy dippies. And uh, you, you understand that uh, that is the pet shop slang for a dog nut. They call him a doggy dippy. And uh, you, can, you can tell him miles away, you know, the kind of, so itsy bitsy little, and talks endlessly to this nutty little dog and pretends that uh, if this was a good, honest country, dogs would be allowed to vote. If not, uh, you know, I mean, who's against mixed marriages? Well, what do you mean? I'm not arguing. It's just, I'm, I'm, no, I'm a very tolerant person. That's my problem. I'm too tolerant. I wish I'd get mad. But uh, the cat cuckoos, there are millions of cat cuckoos everywhere. And uh, the, the bird nuts are not as loud as the cat cuckoos. No, they're not as aggressive. Uh, somehow, cat cuckoos are very closely related to vegetarians, in my mind. They, and they have a tendency to wear space shoes. You notice that, Tony? Yeah, they do. Uh, somehow, uh, they, they, uh, they, they make a strange relationship between uh, cats... Uh, uh, and the clean colon. Somehow there's a connection. I, I don't quite know what it is, but the, they, <laughs> you know, the, and the idea that somehow if you in, if you eat enough carrots, uh, your soul will be as clean as the driven snow. Well, uh, gee, it's a terrible thing. You know, how many of you know that Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian? Do you know that he was? So help me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm amazed that that I'm one of the few people who knows this particular piece of esoteric. As a matter of fact, he was. And wherever Hitler went, and when he was in a bunker or uh, when he was uh, on a trip somewhere, his private vegetarian cook went with him all the time. And he was continually haranguing his staff about how if uh, they became vegetarians, they would have cleaner thoughts and they would be better people. <laughs> I mean, this coming from Hitler is kind of funny, but nevertheless, Hitler was a famous vegetarian. He also, friends, and this is going to really bug you, he was a dog nut, a real dedicated dog nut. And uh, we'll even carry it a little further, friends. 
Are you aware that Ilsa Koch, the famous Ilsa, infamous Ilsa Koch, do you know about her? Did you ever hear of her? Yes, sir, she was quite a chick. Are you aware that she was a leading cat cuckoo? Yeah, she not only made lampshades out of people's uh, epidermis, she also had about 4,000 cats around the house that she loved fanatically. And so uh, <laughs> I'm not making a cause and effect relationship now immediately. Oh, I know there's going to be 14 million calls now about this, but I'm not making a cause and effect relationship at all here, friends. I'm just making the point that uh, so many people, you know, have this idea that if a man loves a dog, somehow he, he must be a nice person. Well... That's a questionable, a very shaky premise upon which to build a character analysis. And uh, nevertheless, uh, <laughs> the idea... No, it really seems to come as a great surprise to people to find out that Hitler was a vegetarian. And, and not only was he a vegetarian, one of the last public rages that he threw uh, was upon the occasion in the bunker, the famous last ten days in the bunker when... The, the Reich was falling on all sides, and the Russian tanks were within 15 feet, and Patton's tanks were roaring up the other side, and airplanes were going over continually, dropping 2,000-pound bombs. And uh, Hitler was in the bunker, and he threw a fantastic fit because uh, his cook, his uh, vegetarian cook, getting a little scared, you know, this cook uh, was out in the backyard trying to figure out some way to get away, and... Uh, Hitler flew in a fantastic rage because uh, his vegetarian meal was not prepared at the time that he wanted it. And they had to go out and get this cook and bring him back. And this was a woman, as a matter of fact. And uh, she prepared his carrots so that he would continue to have a clean soul. Prepared his carrots and his spinach and uh, whatever it was that he believed was uh, the path to righteousness. Oh, people oftentimes do. Uh, that's an old, old superstition that... Uh, that you can measure a man's personality by the stuff that he eats. But there are many, many shaky premises that people have used for years anyway. I imagine, oh yes, and you know, uh, I also relate, uh, really profound vegetarians somehow always seem to believe in astrology too. <laughs> have you noticed that? And they have a tendency to go overboard in the flying saucer field too. Now, I... Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is just a, again, I don't want to make any, any rash generalizations, but I have noticed that, uh, and they oftentimes have dabbled in crobiasm, too. It's the same group. And, and uh, you'll find that, uh, that also they're the, they're the crowd that are, that are uh, now beginning to get involved in this. Did you read this, these wild stories coming out of the West Coast of uh, freezing bodies? And uh, they have these uh, fantastic rites and all this stuff. I, yeah. I mean, it's space shoes, it's all there, you know. I mean, it's all mixed up. And, and, uh, and so for those of you who are dog cuckoos and cat cuckoos and, and uh, cuckoo cuckoos and bird cuckoos, you may find tonight's show a little bugging in a lot of ways because, you know, it's always believed, too, that animals have souls that are as pure as the driven snow. They are not capable of evil. It's only man that's capable of evil. Well, would you bring me some raunchy music on there, please? That's raunchy. That is hairy music. Yes, sir.
I have before me a piece which uh, I, I've been threatening to do a, a show on this for a long time. It was sent to me by, by a friend of mine, a doctor, who says, Shep, you may... Yeah, Frank sent it. And he says, Shep, he says, I think you may dig this. He says, I was throwing out a lot of old lifes. Isn't that a sad thing for a doctor to be doing, throwing out a lot of old lifes? <laughs> Holy smokes. There I go again. Let's clear the air, Tony, with a good, honest, healthy commercial, Tony. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee. Hey, whatever happened to that great singing commercial I used to have here, Tony? Do they use that on other shows? You mean you only get this windbag? I see. All right. Yeah, well, we lost that account, didn't we? This is W.O.R. <laughs> this is W.O.R. And, uh... You know, and, and I'm sorry about that, because it's such a great beer. Miller High Life is a good beer, Dad. And uh, this is WOR in New York. And let's see, we have with us Rover tonight, which is also a fine car. Not exactly a beer, but it's a great automobile. And boy, do they have some great colors in this car. Uh, this is one of, the, one of the most beautiful cars I've ever seen. Was a dark British racing green Rover, which I saw the other day with the steel wheels, you know, the racing-type wheels. And the interior was done in what the British call biscuit. Uh, they have a color of leather, which is called biscuit. And it's not tan. It isn't beige. It's, it's really actually biscuit. The only thing you can call it biscuit. It, what, it, what it looks like is vaguely like... Uh, uh, well, can you imagine a soda cracker, regular, ordinary, Unita-type soda cracker? Well, you know that very light tan that you see on, a, uh, on the top of the soda cracker that's about light? Well, this is biscuit. Beautiful, beautiful color. And the combination of the British Racing Green with the functional design of the Rover with the tremendous letter. By the way, this car is entirely done in real, genuine, absolute, true leather. Uh, it is just a joy to see. And one of the great moments of a Rover is to open the door, Tony, and sit into this thing and smell that leather around you. Boy, you are inside of an automobile. I mean, there is n you don't smell, you know, the, the chemical polyethylene-type plastic. It is leather. And you can smell the wood, you know, the wood dash and leather. Oh, what a car. This is the Rover 2000 TC, and if you'd like to see pictures of this Paragon, uh, send your name and address to Apex. No, Paragon. Uh, Paragon. No, 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 I'm sorry. Is, send your name and address to... Uh, Model T, W-O-R, New York, New York. And we'll be sure to send you pictures. Oh, yes, uh, since this is Thursday, I, I, um, I feel uh, compelled to report that we will be live again this week. Uh, and and I, I must do this because we're getting so many letters from people who say, please send us tickets for the Limelight broadcast. We must get uh, a couple of hundred letters a week that say that. There are no tickets to the Limelight, friends. Uh, no tickets at all. And, you know, I got the doggondest one the other day. There's still a sizable number of old foof-type cynics who believe that we use laugh tracks down there. They're so... Yeah, they say, no, there's no laugh tracks. Can you imagine me trying to talk this chintzy engineering department, Tony, into using a laugh track? That's a joke. Come on. I mean, those are real live customers down there yelling their fool heads off down at the limelight. And if you... If you want to come down and see for yourself, we're down there any Saturday night from 10.30 until midnight, and we're going to have the greatest whoopee show that I think this year we'll see this particular week. Because I can't tell you offhand, now, I, 
secretly, I cannot tell you why this Saturday night show is going to be particularly wild, but there is a reason. And uh, suffice it to say, if you come down Saturday night, you'll find out. And uh, the limelight is right down in Sheridan Square. You just drive from straight down 7th Avenue. And uh, if you'd like to make a reservation tonight, call Oregon 52212. Ask for Pygmalion. Oregon 52212. We've got this. They have the biggest waitress I ever saw in my life. Speaking of Galatea, Tony, you have not been down to the limelight. They have a 7-foot, 9-inch waitress. I swear. Unbelievable. And, she, you know, she's a beautiful girl yet. She's, you know, she, and she comes bursting through those swinging doors into the kitchen. And you should see the waiters. She knocks the waiters over like 10 pins. It's like, you know, she just goes, pow! And the door swings. And poor old Peter flies up against the coffee machine. And he knocks the pizzas over. And poor little Mel. And they've got this giant waitress. And, uh... I asked Mike, uh, wow, we? And he says, well, she's handy around here at times. <laughs> you know, after all, a lot of people, when, once in a while, people have to get their heads knocked together. And it's good to have somebody around that can knock a few heads, that's all. And so this is the limelight, and the number is Oregon 52212. We'll be there Saturday night, swinging from the hip, right? Now, let's get on with this thing. It's just, I, it's just a very embarrassing piece here. And uh, my doctor friend sent me this out of an old life which he was discarding and doesn't none of your business whose life it was that he was tossing out it doesn't matter i just bring me on a little of that music tony and i'll read this to you do you remember a couple of uh, oh maybe six months ago we did a piece down at the limelight about this talking miner do you remember that talking miner that got into trouble well here is further elucidation on the whole problem of birds and animals and the rottenness that lies within their souls when you put them inside of a zoo and what they really do. Listen to this. Washington, D.C., and it's from Life by John Neary. It is hardly news that this town has a... He's talking about Washington. Has a supercharged sensitivity to words and an almost limitless capacity to behave absurdly over them. Nevertheless, there was a stir recently when two talking birds at the Smithsonian's National Zoological Park were unceremoniously slapped into solitary on the allegation that one of them had been talking dirty. Now remember, they threw two birds into the pokey. Only one had come up with the rippers. As the Washington Post reported in a prissy front-page expose, two little old ladies, a species with which this town abounds, paused in an amble through the zoo's spanking new $1 million birdhouse to peer into a bright alcove a twitter with motmots, roadrunners, racket-tailed drongos, and the two minor birds. <laughs> Somehow, I don't know. Is it only me? No, it isn't only me. James Thurber also. Uh, I remember Thurber's line. I guess the one thing that Thurber appreciated was the basic absurdity of animals. You know, to me, a, a rhinoceros is an absurd animal. Do you remember what that big rhino did to Dr. Milmos? <laughs> you remember that famous cartoon? It shows, uh, was it a lady? I believe it was a lady. She was very mad. She had a pith helmet on. And uh, here's this large animal standing there. And uh, the animal looks like a cross between an enormous Airedale, a rhinoceros, and uh, one of those cookies you get when you get animal crackers. Big animal, big round eyes, 
And you saw on the ground, you saw a shoe, Tony. You saw also an empty pith helmet. And you saw what looked like uh, maybe a stick or something, you know, like a, maybe an old piece of a shirt. And this lady is saying to him, now what have you done with Dr. Milmosh? <laughs> the animal's looking. <laughs> the basic absurdity. You remember his famous cartoon, The Seal in the Bedroom? It's the most famous cartoon of all. It shows this guy, and he's sitting up in bed. And next to him is his wife, who's looking real bug, you know, like she's got that look, oh, gee, why did I marry such a, such a dumb slob? And he is looking, he says, I, I tell you, I swear I heard a seal. And you can see over him, peering over the top of the bed is this seal. <laughs> it's disturbing. And, and uh, it runs all through this piece. The Washington Post has been talking about it. And in this bright alcove, a Twitter with Montmots, Roadrunners, Racketail Drongos, and these two minor birds. At this point, the ladies complained to an interested newsman, their ears were distinctly assailed by an unspeakable imprecation, spoken by one of the miners. And they couldn't tell which one said it. There were two miners in there, but one of them did. The bird, they insisted, had uttered directly and unmistakably at them a two-letter Anglo-Saxonism ending in U. Well, earthy goffs of this general sort are commonplace at all zoos. It always seems, Dr. Theodore Reed, director of the Washington Zoo, says ruefully, it always seems to be mating time at the bear cages whenever the kindergarten crowd goes by. <laughs> Further, furthermore, there are at the zoo 150 talking birds any one of which, at any minute, could cut loose with a tiny piece of its tiny feathered mind and just lay it out. The phrase which shocked the little old ladies is probably not, in fact, altogether surprising coming from a miner who has spent any time in Washington. Miners, in fact, have a particularly bad reputation among capital zoo officials, and it goes back years, way back in the 20s, for example. The zoo's resident miner was given to yelling piteously Invariably, as the folks from the Audubon Society strolled by, he would start to cry. He'd say, what are you going to feed me? What are you going to feed me? Ah! Isn't that awful? <laughs> yeah, man. A few years later, this same bird, this bird became very famous in the 20s, was put on display at an annual Smithsonian exhibition for government brass. Among the dignitaries was General Herbert Lord, at that time, the director of the U.S. budget, of which the Washington Zoo's own budget was a part. As the general beamed affably upon the raffish blackbird, it cocked an unimpressed eye at him and said very clearly, Where's the money? Where's the appropriation? Black, black. I call that impertinent. General Lord barked at a hapless zoo official who knew nothing about it and couldn't tell who taught this bird this. And just as he said that, the bird hollered, So you're that ended it. <laughs> well, this bird became so famous for this incident, he was not only allowed to remain, but he came, became almost venerated. President Theodore Rose, or Franklin Roosevelt inquired after his health all the time. He'd always say, how's that miner doing over there? <laughs> you know? And in recent years, zoo officials, however, we've gotten very square. I'll tell you, this world has gotten squarer by the day. You know, in spite of the fact that everybody says there's a sexual revolution and everything going on, 
I still maintain the world has gotten actually squarer in many, many ways. And uh, the, these two birds, you know, if, if these birds had been around in the 20s, you know those birds that hollered at those old ladies? If they had done that in the 20s, I'm sure not only would Mencken have written a fantastic piece on them, uh, but they would have been on the equivalent of the Ed Sullivan show. No doubt about it. They would have been on, uh, on Fred Allen's show. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the famous incident of the eagle and Fred Allen? Did you know that there was a famous incident? I don't, even have, I don't even have to tell you that story. It was a fantastic story, what the Eagle did on the Fred Allen show and what Fred Allen said and how the crowd and the audience laughed. And uh, everybody across the country listening to the show knew exactly what the Eagle had done. <laughs> well, I saw an incident. I want to tell you, I saw an incident one time. Now, now I, I know a lot of bird nuts are going to tell me out there they're going to... They, they, they feel that birds don't have any sense. You know, so the, the real bird nut doesn't believe that a bird is capable of actually saying a four-letter word and knowing what it means. So uh, I, I think maybe that uh, that means that we who believe they can do that really are more pro-bird than the bird nuts are. But nevertheless, I saw an incident which I will never forget. There, there was a show that I once was involved with. I was the announcer on it. And it was a hobby show. Do you remember when TV used to have things like hobby shows and they had Faye Emerson on, and uh, there were ladies that would play the piano. What was that one called, Robin something? You remember? Yeah, and they had things called Howdy Doody and uh, all this stuff. Well, that was the, the, really in the early days of television. And I'm the announcer on this hobby show. And an announcer who is now very big as an announcer in Philadelphia, in case any of you know him out there, it's, it's Hal Woodard, if uh, you're in Philadelphia. He's now, I believe, at WFIL or one of those stations. And uh, Hal is the most distinguished-looking bird you ever saw in your life. I mean, Hal Woodard is the kind of an announcer. He's, he's a throwback to the Basil Risedale days. He's, he's really a throwback to the days of people like uh, old Tony Wands, uh, the kind of announcer who came to work with striped morning trousers and a cutaway coat. And he had a clipped guardsman mustache and parted his hair in the middle, you know, wavy hair like, like Adolph Manjou, and he carried a rolled bumper shoot and all that kind of stuff. And Hal, this deep kind of voice, uh, tremendously dignified man. And so I'm in the announce booth, and I say, and now, folks, it's hobby time once again. And then we had a record that would go, yes, friends, from the world of the hobbies. Now, the television station brings you a 15-minute program devoted to hobbies. And what is your hobby, friend? If you have a hobby, send it to us on a card, and we will invite you up to the studio, and then you can tell all the rest of us about your hobby. Do you collect pots and pans? Do you collect Romanian button hooks? Are you a stamp nut? What is your hobby? Bring it to us, and we'll show it to the rest of the world. And then I would say, and now here he is, your hobby man himself, the host of today's hobby show, hobbyist Hal Woodard. Mm. Good evening, hobbyists everywhere. And tonight... Our hobby is a very interesting one. We have a lady here from Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, who teaches animals how to talk. And she teaches birds how to talk. And she has brought with tonight George, a trained minor bird, who speaks and sings and whistles, plays the flute, and can count up to 27 on his claws. All right, now, and here she is, Mrs. Charles Watanabe and George. Well, the camera dollied in, and here's George sitting there saying, looking around, and he's a big, fat minor bird. Now, I don't know whether you've ever seen a minor bird. A lot of people never really seen them. They think a minor bird 
uh, is like a little sparrow or something. Minerbird's big to begin with. He's big. He's got a big yellow beak. And he's got an evil look in the eye. See, here's a picture of one. There it is right there, Tony. He's a great big son of a gun. And he comes from someplace like Burma. And he is a very sharp bird. He, uh, the miner and the crow bear a very close, if not the ornithological relationship, let's put it this way, philosophical. Uh, the crow and the minor bird have a lot in common. They're black and they've got a kind of a, a kind of a raffish look about them. And so George sat there on the edge of the desk. And the lady said, George, uh, count up, would you please, George, now, count up to three. George looks around. And the camera dollies in on him, real close, big things. Please count up to three, George. And everybody applauds, and the guys in the control say, wow, did you see that? Look at that. And the bird looks real smart. He looks around. Now, George, would you subtract two from four? Subtract two from four. He's thinking. Hooray! The crowd cheers, and there's a studio audience, and they say, hooray, hooray, whoopee, whoopee. And old George is sitting there, and he's really looking great. And he's weak. Blah, 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 blah. He flaps his wings. Blah, blah, blah. She says, all right. Now, George, would you please tell them your name? George! 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 Well, of course, the crowd went eight. This was the first time he ever, he really actually opened this trap and started to say something. At this point, he's just been crawling. He's just quacking. She says, all right, now, George, what do you... What do you do when you get up in the morning? Ah, have breakfast. Ah, breakfast. Wow, whoopee. Very good. Have breakfast. And uh, she says, Mr. Woodard, would you like to ask the minor bird something? Would you like to ask him something yourself? Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, yes. Uh, this very dignified man says, hmm, yes. Uh, George, how do you like being on television? George cocks his head and looks back over at Hal Woodard with that big Homburg hat and that big guardsman mustache. And he looks out at that gummy audience. All television audiences look with that slack-jawed, idiotic look. Oh, they're sitting there, you know. And he looked around. He looked up at the control room. And you could see the director in there. And they, he waited. You see, this bird was smart. I, I, this bird knew what he was doing. He waited till they dollied right in on him, see. He's full frame, you know. He looks up, and he sees which camera's on. He can tell, you know, one of them is black, the other one's got the red light. He looks at the red light. And uh, Mr. Woodard then repeated his question. Uh, George, how do you like being on television? <laughs> With that, he... Well, I just don't know what a scene. He spread his wings, and he did it right there on television. It was, it was unbelievable. You know, I, I just, you, you know, and, and, and Woodard sort of staggered back. This bird had actually made a statement about television, see? And uh, he said, well, uh, very good, George. Uh, well, there's a lot of us here at the station who feel that way about television. Well, the, the cameraman was so stunned that he couldn't take the camera off what George had done on the table. And there it was, full frame. And George moved over thoughtfully so that we could get, you know, a, a real clear shot of it. And the director's sitting up there with his mouth hanging open. And it was the most succinct remark that I have yet to see in all these years about television. And George, a talking minor bird from Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, said it. 
right there in front of the world. And uh, Mrs. Watanabe says, <laughs> George, uh, <laughs> George really doesn't mean that. And then George, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> and the show went off the air quietly. I said, that's been hobby time, friends. And you have a hobby, whatever your hobby might be. And I'm in the control booth, you know, doing my little bit. I said, if you have a hobby, uh, you saw what George's hobby was. What is yours? Do you have a hobby like George's? Well, we'd be glad to put it on television. Just send your name and address to this TV station, Channel Whoopi, and address it to Hobby Whoopi, and we'll make sure that you'll have your time on television. We got 97 million cards. They all wanted George to come back for an encore. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, terrible. Awful. You want to hear the rest of this thing about these birds? All right. Okay. All right. Uh, this bird became very famous, you know, the one that we talked about, that President Roosevelt always asked about his health. But in recent years, officials have grown considerably less tolerant. When the recent cussing complaints reached their ears, they immediately isolated the two miners from the viewing public. I don't want people going around saying they can't bring their children to the zoo, Dr. Reed said. As if the kids don't know them words, friends. The prime suspect, called Petey Boy was known to be the better talker of the pair. Petey Boy was given priority attention. He was given a cage right smack in Dr. Reed's office where the zoo director could form a speaking acquaintance and monitor any off-color English. Zoo records indicate that Petey Boy, now known as that bird, had been donated on November 14, 1964 by a Mrs. Clyde Reeves and at the time allegedly only whistled and said occasionally hello. The other bird, supposedly less articulate, is named Mickey. He was relegated to the zoo's basement, where nobody can see him, along with a baby owl and a parrot that had lost his tail feathers. Mickey had been given to the zoo on August 16, 1965, by a Mrs. Meiselman. Neither Petey Boy nor Mickey was on the record as much of a cusser, or for that matter, much of anything. They hadn't been banded. They hadn't been tagged, they hadn't been tattooed, and Dr. Reed had only the recollection of keepers to tell him which miner had what kind of wattles and how big. Minus, minus, says Dr. Reed. They come and go. Minus, minus. Petey Boy, quickly developed, had a far livelier repertoire than Mrs. Reeves had ever admitted. Not only did this bird swear, but Petey Boy has a sinister shadow-like cackle. He goes, <laughs> oh, what a great bird. I'd love to have a bird that cackles like the shadow. Only the shadow knows. <laughs> he also screamed occasionally, let me out, in that tone of voice. He, uh, for, well, occasionally, it says according to this thing, occasionally, he would simply holler, help. I think it's kind of nice for a minor bird to yell out of the window. <laughs> but the evil four-letter expletive? There were times, as he worked at his desk, when Dr. Reed would perk up and think, by George, he just said it. But had he really? The evidence seemed too scratchy, as though the bird actually knew that he was being monitored and censored. He just looked at Dr. Reed, and Dr. Reed would look at him. Other zoo officials were ultra-cautious about what they told the press, which, of course, was busily churning out editorials and feature stories 
about the big dirty bird scam. It could have picked up the phrase before we acquired it, Donald Dyklin, head of the zoo's animal division, observed. Or it could have learned it from a member of the public when the keeper wasn't looking. Mickey's former owner, Mrs. Meiselman, now came forth with the, indi- with the information indicating the zoo director was now auditing the wrong bird. All the time, it was Mickey. Her Mickey, she said, the one being held in the basement, was a big foul mouth from way back. <laughs> I really dig these birds. As, as she told it, Mickey had learned the art of dirty word saying from an Israeli sailor. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> Let me tell you, Israeli sailors know a few words. And he learned it at a New York affair when both parties were more than a few, had more than a few beakfuls. The sailor had been drinking, so had the bird. You know, birds love to drink. Are you aware of that? I know that this is going to hurt Peggy, but listen, I've seen many a squash parrot. I, I, listen, I knew a parrot that used to knock down bourbon faster than you could put it in his cage. Now, I didn't put any bourbon in this bird's cage, but this bird was about 198 years old. You know how, how some parrots, they say, are, are 100 years old? This was a very, very old parrot. And when this parrot swore, he swore in archaic English. You know, he said things like, God, Zooks! You know, I mean, he went all the way back to the days when, when, uh, when Captain Kidd was just beginning to work as an ensign, you know. This, uh, and, and he was, he was about 120 years old. And this bird would raise holy hell until somebody gave him a canister of bourbon twice a day. He was a drinking bird. He loved his bourbon. And, and by the way, the only thing he would drink was bourbon. You could not give him scotch. He couldn't take, he wouldn't, wouldn't even touch gin. But bourbon, he loved bourbon. And it was only one kind of bourbon that he dug. Sour mash bourbon. This bird was a connoisseur. I'm serious. And his name was Jake. And, and old Jake would sit, and, and, and for some reason or other, he, he, he had a bad leg. Well, you know, when a, when a bird gets old, a bird gets arthritis and everything else. Like, you know, he had a bad leg, he would limp around, and he, they would let him out of his cage. And he had a great big cage, and old Jake had been owned by like 25 families all the way back to the Tudor days or the Renaissance period or something. And old Jake had seen it all. He'd seen it come, and he'd seen it go. And the only thing Jake got out of life, like, like many an old coot, was his occasional snifter. That's what he liked. I mean, he wasn't interested in lady parrots or anything anymore. He'd just walk around the living room there, old Jake. And, and then when he wanted his drink, he would start to growl. He would go, ah, ah. And I remember sitting, uh, the guy who owned them was a copywriter at a radio station that I worked in one time. And we were in the kitchen. We were having, uh, we were having something to eat or, sitting there doing something in the kitchen, and out in the next room, this is when I discovered this. He, he'd never mentioned it before. I heard, wah, wah, wah. This old son of a gun is bugged. You can just tell it was coming out of him. He's bugged. Wah, wah, wah. And with that, Frank got up, and he goes to the cupboard, and in his cupboard, you could see the gin, you could see the vodka, and he takes out this, this bottle of Jack Daniels, and he pours a big double sniffer, and he goes into the next room. You know, he's, and I turn around, and I look in there, and he has taken the double sniffer. Well, you know this thing that birds drink out of? They've got this little cup in there. He's got a little white cup. He had taken this white cup, and he just emptied the water out, and he poured the water in the fern or something, and he just, 
a big double, a, a, listen, it was two fingers of Jack Daniels. This bird hops into that cage and he could, and you could just see his old eyeballs spinning. Well, he laid down those two fingers of Jack Daniels as quick as you could look at it. You know, a bird just scoops it up, oh, down it goes. Well, he sat then on his perch, a little perch there, and he rocked back and forth. He rocked. He would just rock back and forth. Of course, he's pleasantly bagged. He's ready to go to bed now. He's had his, he's had his nightcap, and he's rocking back and forth. He's rocking. He's swift. And I come walking into the room. He's, of course, he knew millions of people all throughout his life. I walk into the room, and he looks at me. One eye looks over at me. He's being very jovial. He's just like like any old codger sitting in the bar when you come in. He just gives you a hello, you know. And you say, how are you, Jake? He rocks back. And I said to Frank, I said, Frank, what is all this? Oh, he says, oh, this bird. He says, listen, I'm telling you, I'm going broke. This bird drinks two fingers of bourbon twice a day. He says, you know, this guy will knock down a fifth of bourbon. He says, every week. He says, knocks down a bourbon. He says, he won't drink anything but Jack Daniels. He doesn't fool around. He says, you know, I go out and I try to get him this cheap stuff, and he yells and hollers. He knocks it out of his cage. I bring him to Jack Daniels. That's all he drinks. And so somewhere out there in the darkness right now is a 128-year-old bird who refuses to go to bed until he gets his snifter. Now, don't come and get mad at me and say, isn't that awful that they give it to him? He demands it. They don't give it to him. He takes it, friend. I mean, old Jake. Now, you want to hear about Mickey? Mickey was a foul mouth from way back. And she said she really, he could blister the paint off a wall in Israeli as well. He also swore in Israeli, which is a very ripe language. Three of her neighbors, she said, had refused to allow their children ever to come to her home, thus upsetting a babysitting pool that she'd been arranging. All of this, along with Mickey's sloppy eating habits, he had a tendency to throw his hamburger all around the place and yell and swear. <laughs> Poor Mickey. And that's why she gave him to the zoo. Mickey had slipped through its screening process, she felt, because his profanity was not an everyday occurrence. That it was just things that he did on occasions. When he got bugged. For example, whenever anybody would have a party around him, he would really get obscene. She says New Year's celebrations particularly. He also, somehow, whenever elderly ladies would appear in his vicinity, he was very sensitive to them. And he would come out with these ripe four-letter words. And at this point, Mrs. Reeves got wind of the jam her Petey boy was in. The question is now, it still stands at that. Which bird really did it? The, the voting is towards Mickey. Well, I want to tell you, I wish, I wish we weren't on the radio here. I, 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 I'm serious. I, uh, when, when I was a kid, uh, I learned a lot of the facts of life from a large crow that lived down by the river. A guy, have you ever heard a talking crow, Tony? Never? Well, uh, for those of you who don't know about this, a crow can be taught to talk better than any of the so-called talking birds that are around. Like for, hey, did, did I tell you about the parakeet I knew who could say poems? I knew a parakeet that could recite couplets, and he would come out, I'm serious, I, this, he didn't really recite couplets, he did dirty limericks. You know, young man from the ears of two different sizes. Well, <laughs> and, and, and I, I know of this bird. Now, the thing about this bird, and I, I think this is...